Amen. Good morning, all. Just be a good boy. That's what they said to us back in the day. Be a good girl. That's what our our parents said to us, what our teachers said to us, and most of the adults around us said things just like that. Behave, obey, and whatever you do, just don't embarrass me. To one degree or another, we were all born to be moralists. Very quickly, we learned that our behavior is directly connected to our standard of comfort. Well-behaved children are rewarded. Misbehaving children are punished. And then in school, that same pattern emerges. Teachers favor the, the children who comply. They shower praises on those who perform well. Even in the church, you'll hear adults say, oh, that child is so well-behaved, so respectful. That child has been raised right. A child who is raised right pleases his parents and other adults by adhering to all the accepted moral conventions and all of the social etiquettes. And when they grow up, they emerge as adults who are clean-cut and respectable They obey the laws, they love their neighbors, they meet their religious expectations, and they avoid scandal. This is what parents want, right? This is what our culture affirms, and this is what churches often celebrate. But that can also lead us into a false gospel. Let me say that again. That can lead us into a false gospel. Self-righteous moralism claims that salvation can be reduced to levels of improving behavior. It's taught in churches all across the world. It's believed by well-meaning churchgoers in almost every denomination. And it's communicated to lost people that that really is the core message of Christianity. That God demands that you straighten out your life according to a set of rules that he designates. And if you don't, you'll be punished just like when you were a kid. That's what the average agnostic actually believes about our faith. And it's interesting, moralism comes in both a conservative form and a liberal form. For conservatives, it's usually about a list of personal do's and don'ts. I I read my Bible, I have my quiet time, I go to some type of church event, always with a smile on my face, check, check, check. For the liberal, it's more about social justice, I love everybody conditionally, I I fight for certain causes, I do charity work, etc. But either way, in either form, it always comes back to the belief that the path of righteousness is found in continual growth and moral conduct. And again, always with that smile plastered on our face that tells the world that everything is absolutely fine. We've got it together. Now, moralists don't go around claiming that they're perfect or that they're sin-free, but they're certainly better than others. They only sin in small ways and always in secret so as to not bring scandal upon them or their squared away families. Now, is it true that the Bible teaches that there is a certain number of moral commands that ought to be taught? Absolutely. And the church bears a responsibility to teach those moral commands and to bear witness to the world of exactly what God says is right and wrong. So don't misunderstand me. It's good and right to raise obedient children who behave well. It's good and right to live out the moral commands of Scripture. 
But it's not the gospel. Moralism is not the gospel. Living a moral life that is better than others will never gain favor for you in the eyes of God, and it will never satisfy the debt that you or I owe for sin. The reality is there are many, many people around us, even family members, friends, people in our lives who have been raised right and have a certain amount of outwardly respectability in the way they live, and they're still heading for hell. Self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and moralism are going to be heavy themes in the second chapter of Romans. So gird your loins accordingly. Grab your Bibles, turn to second chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Now we've been away for a while, haven't we? We've been away from the book of Romans for a while. So let's quickly remind ourselves where we left off. We're in the first of five smaller books that make up the one larger book of the book of Romans. And we're in the middle of one that we call the book of sin, which covers verses 118 to 320. Several weeks ago, we finished the all-important first chapter of Romans, which lays a very important foundation. If you don't understand Romans chapter 1, the rest of the book is going to be challenging. God has revealed himself to every human being on earth through the created order so that men and women are without excuse, right? But because of their sinful hearts, men and women have suppressed the truth about God in their unrighteousness, and they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have chosen to worship created things rather than the creator. And so because they failed to give God thanks and give him the praise that he's due, God has given them over to the consequences of their own sin. And we finished the chapter uh, just recently by looking at sort of the downward spiral of human sinfulness that comes out of this giving over to their sin. And that began with degrading sexual appetites and ended with a vice list that included, among other things, some some things that you might find common to your life. Greed and envy and deception and gossip and slander and arrogance. See, by the time Paul finishes his indictment in Romans chapter 1, nobody is left standing. All of us are condemned before the Creator. We're all guilty as charged. That's where we left off. Now, let's look at verse 1. Actually, before we get to verse 1, before I begin to read, what I want you to see as we go through here is Paul is about to employ a certain literary technique called diatribe. And we're going to see this not only here, but actually in increasing measure as he goes through the book of Romans. It's called diatribe. And this was a a common literary device in ancient days. You'll find it in Socrates. You'll find it in Plato, other Greek philosophers. You'll even find it in other biblical books, James, for example. And essentially what diatribe means is the writer is going to create a dialogue with a hypothetical opponent, often raising questions, sometimes rhetorical questions. Sometimes he'll even suggest a falsehood, which the author will then confront and correct and bring the truth to bear on that particular subject. And scholars believe that this style actually reflects real-life conversations and debates that Paul must have had in his gospel ministry, whether it's in the synagogue or in the Greek marketplace. This is the way he often communicated with people about the gospel. So you're going to see a little bit of that here today, and it's going to increase as we go through the book of Romans. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice 
such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So stop there for today. I originally thought we were going to bite off more, and I got into it this week and said we just we got to just stop there. It's just too much. So who, who is Paul describing here? This is one of the key questions. Who is he Who's he talking about in this passage? By the way, notice the hypothetical opponent in verse 3. He says, do you suppose this, O man? He's created an opponent to have a dialogue with here. Who is he speaking of? It's going to become clear when we get to verse 12, and even more so in verse 17, that Paul is laying out an indictment against his own people, the Jews. That's who he's speaking to here. Now, how many of you remember the story of David, David and Bathsheba? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Really well-known story. There's an interesting parallel here. And let me just quickly recap the story. As you know, David coveted another man's wife. And because he was the king, when her husband was off in battle, David sent for her and committed adultery with her. And of course, then came the really, really bad news that she was, what? She was pregnant. So he awkwardly tried to have that whole affair covered up. But when that didn't work, he arranged for her husband to be killed in battle. And in doing so, David thought that he had sort of wrapped up the whole, the whole uh, trouble, the whole problem, and that he'd hushed it up, and it was all going to go away until one day a prophet came to visit him. Remember Nathan the prophet? Shows up before the king with a story. It's always dangerous when the pastor comes and tells you a story, right? I got a story to tell you. And Nathan the prophet says, There was a poor man in David's kingdom who had a single lamb, which was so precious to that family that they considered it like a member of their family. But there was also a rich man in the kingdom who owned all kinds of great flocks and herds. But in order to entertain some visiting nobility, he sent and took that poor family's one lamb and he had it sacrificed and killed. So he tells the story and David, as David hears it, how does he react? He's enraged by it, right? Righteous indignation. And he says, there's only one thing that would bring justice to that situation. That man must die. What happens next? Nathan points his bony finger at the king, which took a lot of chutzpah. He points his finger at the king and he says, you are that man. It's a surprise ending to a very difficult moment in David's life. A moment where his sin was dramatically and unavoidably put right before him where he had to deal with it. Well, Paul's doing the same thing here in Romans chapter 2. The same type of thing. See, throughout that first chapter of Romans, Paul had been describing how all the world stands condemned by the wrath of a righteous God. But in particular, he emphasized idolatry, which was a mark of pagan Gentiles. And so the Jews, who were in the the congregation, who must have been listening to Romans chapter 1, were likely smugly nodding their heads in agreement, clapping their hands, amen, Paul, amen. Those dirty Gentiles, go get them. They deserve God's wrath. Those Gentiles are lustful, they're depraved. They are everything that you've described, Paul. Thank God we're not like them. 
We're the Jews. We're the people of the covenant. First in blessing, last in judgment. As children of Abraham, we're safe from God's wrath. But now Paul, like Nathan the prophet, stands up and he says to his fellow Jews, No, you are those men. You too are without excuse. This would have been a shocking moment for any Jew in the congregation of Rome to suddenly realize Paul's actually talking about me would have been a shocking moment, like like David being confronted with his sin. Paul's using the same indirect approach that the prophet Amos did 800 years before. If you've ever read Amos, what he does is he describes all the sins of the surrounding foreign nations, and as he gets closer to Israel, suddenly, boom. Just when the, the Jews are feeling vindicated and safe, he says, and here, Israel, is your sin. It's exactly what he's doing here. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks about the Jews for today. I don't want to focus so much on the identity of the Jews as the target here. I want to focus more on the content of Paul's indictment. Because here's the reality about this. These first five verses can apply to any moralist, whether Jew or Gentile. And it's just as much applicable today as it was in the first century. So let's take our eyes off the Jews for a second and let's allow God to put up a mirror before us and see where we fit into these five verses. Four principles, very simple principles, come out of this particular verse. Here's number one. Human beings are prone to self-righteously judge others for the very same sins that they commit. Look at verse one again. Therefore you have no excuse, Paul says. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in the same way that you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? For you who judge practice the same things. That's why. That's why you're without excuse. That's why you're condemned. And this is what moralists do. They're really good at pointing out the sins of others while committing the very same types of sins. Now, it's not a one-to-one correlation. They murder, I murder, but the same categories, the same types of sins. They just don't do it as blatantly. They're just better at hiding their sins. True story. In a city in Connecticut... 53 residents came together in a particular neighborhood and they signed a petition to stop reckless driving in their streets. Has this ever happened in your neighborhood? Well, the police a couple nights later responded much quicker than the people thought they would. And within a couple of days, they set a speed trap. And in that first night, they caught five people. Guess what? All five had signed the petition. Huh. They were quietly guilty of the very thing that they outwardly proclaimed as a sin. A man complained about the amount of time his family spent in front of the television. His daughters, he said, watched too many cartoons. They didn't do their homework. His wife, he complained, watched too many shows on Netflix. So he vowed. He stood up among the family and he vowed, as soon as football season is over, I'm going to pull that plug. And he did it with a straight face. I mean, can we be any more blind than that? How self-righteous and blind we can be. There's four things that mark a self-righteous moralist. First, they judge the sins of others while completely overlooking their own. I see this, by the way, in marriage counseling all the time. A couple comes in, they're struggling. The husband says, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I work hard each and every day. And I come home, and she's doing this, and she's doing that. And she's the source of the problem. Guess what she says? I'm not perfect, 
But I work hard around here, and I come home, and he's doing this, and he's doing that, and it's all his fault. They're both passing judgment on each other, while each of them is doing the same types of things that they're blaming each other for. We're really good at this, judging the sins of others while being blind to our own. Secondly, they judge others based on personally selected biblical standards, not on the whole of Scripture. We pick and choose the verses that we want to apply to other people while intentionally being blind to the ones that might apply to us. We hold a personal hierarchy of sinful behavior. And we feel totally comfortable condemning others for bigger visible sins while indulging in our own secret sins, which we claim are much smaller and much more excusable. Third, the moralist is more concerned about external appearances than with true inward godliness. The moralist will keep up every appearance of having his life squared away on the outside because that's really what matters, looking good to everybody in the body. And he will do everything possible to avoid dealing with his own sins on a heart level because that's secondary to him. Fourth, the self-righteous moralist justifies himself by comparing his outward life to the outward lives of others. He'll identify people who he considers to be lower on the ethical scale, and he'll even exaggerate their faults if he has to in order to make himself feel better. See, when he begins to feel convicted about his own sin, he just thinks about other people who he considers are worse sinners, and, and bless his heart, he just feels better about himself. Quick rabbit trail that I want to take on this issue of judging. Judging is one of the most confused ideas in Scripture. You might be tempted to read Romans chapter 2 here and say, well, I guess I can't judge anybody then. But understand, that's not what Paul is saying here. We need to get this right. You know that the, the world's favorite biblical idea is thou shalt not judge, right? For obvious reasons, because they don't want to be judged. So, so this gets said all the time, thou shalt not judge. But throughout the New Testament, what we see is the issue isn't judging per se. The issue is that we shouldn't judge hypocritically. That we shouldn't judge falsely. That we shouldn't judge self-righteously. Those things are always condemned. Don't judge others while practicing the very same things. It's that simple. So, if you're a serial complainer, don't raise your hand. But if you're a serial complainer, whether it's in the home or the workplace or church or anywhere, don't judge others when they criticize you, right? If you shade the truth at work or in your home, don't judge others when they deceive you. Stop railing against all the sexual perversion in our culture if you're secretly involved in sexual sin. If you have a history of being flaky, don't judge others when they don't show up to something that's now important to you. If you drive aggressively, don't judge the guy that just went flying past you because he's more aggressive than you. Yeah, I, 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 I confess. Look, I'm a hypocrite and so are you. But we need to take this seriously, right? If someone steals from you, don't judge them if you cheated on your taxes two weeks ago. If you lack sensitivity or care for others, don't judge people when they ignore you or hurt your feelings. I could go on, couldn't I? But you get the point. Don't judge people when you do the same thing. 
This is the, this is the, the, the witness of the New Testament. Is, it's not judging per se. It's judging hypocritically. It's judging falsely. It's judging self-righteously. We are to judge our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ for accountability purposes and for purity of the church, right? We're to watch over each other. That's a big, a big part of our covenant here at Oak Hill. We confront one another in love when they seem to be turning away from the truth and walking down an ungodly path. James says that we're to turn our brother or sister from the error of their ways. But in light of Romans 2 here, we should be really cautious, shouldn't we? We should be really cautious before we go to our brother or sister and confront them in sin. This requires great humility. It requires fear and trembling, lest we become the self-righteous hypocrite that Paul's talking about here in Romans 2. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, first, take that giant log out of your eye before you go and remove the speck from your brother's eye. Right? We judge one another only when the motivation is love and restoration And only after we've examined ourselves and confessed our own sin before the Lord because he sees everything, right? So be careful about this subject of judging. You'll see it all on Facebook, right? Unbelievers all the time. You shouldn't judge. You're not supposed to judge. Understand what the the Bible actually says about this. All right, so that's principle number one. Number two, that was the longest one. Number two is this. Self-righteous hypocrisy brings people under God's judgment. Self-righteous hypocrisy brings people under God's judgment. Look at verses 2 and 3. And we know that the judgment of God rightly, rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will somehow escape the judgment of God? Why do we think we can hide from God? Have Have you ever tried to do this little a little psychological analysis of yourself. What is it about us that we think we can hide? Why do we, a people who should know better, why do we work so hard to portray ourselves on the outside as something different than what we really are? Does it go back to that moralism, those things that we were taught as kids? I read a short little story this week that, that made me laugh. 12-year-old Billy was nervously sitting in the waiting room at his very first orthodontist appointment. And the nurse behind the glass had asked him to complete a, you know, a patient questionnaire here, you know, the clipboard that you get, fill out the, the, the patient questionnaire. And he was bent on filling this thing out in a way that would impress the orthodontist. So when he got to the question that said, what are your hobbies? He wrote, baseball and flossing. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll do almost anything to look better than we are, to impress other people, even though we know God knows all. And that's the problem. We forget that God knows all, sees all, hears all, and measures our hearts and our minds absolutely perfectly and accurately. In verse 2, Paul writes that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who judge hypocritically. And the Greek there means that he always judges truthfully. That's who he is. He is a God of truth. This is an essential attribute of who he is. He judges truthfully according to the true facts because all things are open and laid bare before his eyes, it says in Hebrews 4. All things are laid bare. You can't hide. You can't fool him. Here's the thing. You and I, we all have mental images of ourselves. Did you know this about who we are? We have an image, of, you know, whether it's our, our looks on the outside or it's our character on the inside, and we usually think it's pretty good. 
I mean, maybe that's just a survival technique that we, we sort of pump ourselves up and think that we're doing pretty well. And then there's other people who also have a, a mental image of us, both on the inside and the outside. And oftentimes it's, it's quite different than what we think of ourselves. The question is, who's right? And the answer is neither one. Neither one of us. What a man really is, is what he is before God. Truthfully. What a woman is, is what she is before God. Truthfully and fully. God is the only one who knows the full truth about you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Your own heart. And he always judges according to the true facts. And nobody, not one person in this room, will escape his absolutely perfect analysis of our hearts. This, by the way, is why scripture is so invaluable to us, right? When we read the word, we see how God sees us. We can read it. We say, this is how God sees us. It's like a mirror that gets held up to us so that we can really see who we are. The question is, will we look? And will we respond? So if we think we've gotten away with judging others while committing the same types of sins, newsflash, we haven't. You haven't. I haven't. And we won't escape the judgment of God for it either. As one author put it, God judges judgers. Judgers get judged and they get judged first. That's a lot of judge. See, God's not going to have to search through his law book to condemn a moralist. You know, it's not like, God, wow, this guy's really good. I, I got to find something against him, right? He doesn't have to look through his law book. All he has to do is apply the very same standard that that moralist used in judging other people. Ouch. Principle number two. Number three. The riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience should lead us to what? Repentance, not to presume upon his grace. Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So God is kind towards this, right? What does that mean? That means that he gives rebellious men and women all kinds of really great gifts. Air to breathe and food to eat and homes to live in and families that love us. He gives us beautiful scenery to enjoy. He treats humanity far better than we deserve. He's kind. He's also tolerant towards us, meaning he doesn't just strike us dead when we sin. Right? The smite button. He doesn't just go, that's it. Even though he'd have every right to. And he's patient towards us. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger, giving us opportunity after opportunity to repent of our sin. And yet we show contempt for his goodness. We show contempt for his kindness. When we come to the conclusion that we can sin with impunity and not be judged for it. Here in verse 4, the New American Standard says, we think lightly of his goodness, but that rendering doesn't really do justice to the strength of this verb, kataphroneo. It means to despise something. To despise it, to scorn it, to hate it. Can you imagine despising the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God? That's what we do when we presume upon his grace. Notice that Paul says that God doesn't just trickle out these things to us either. He gives gives it to us richly, he says. He pours it out. He lavishes it upon us. And we treat it with contempt. The self-righteous moralist 
has a wrong interpretation of God's goodness. He mistakenly thinks that because God has been so kind to him and because God doesn't just pour out his wrath immediately that somehow he's okay. Not only that, over time he comes to believe that now he's earned those benefits, he can expect them to come, and actually he begins to demand that they come. This is what a moralist does. Friends, God is indeed being kind and tolerant and patient with us, not so that we can go on sinning. Not that we should presume upon his grace, but by his grace that we would turn away from sin and come to him and repent and worship him for his glory. That's what Paul says in Romans 2. Last one, number four. Any man who doesn't deal with his hard, unrepentant heart is storing up wrath. Storing up wrath for the coming day of God's judgment. That's serious, isn't it? Are we dealing with our hearts? Are we just concerned with the outside? How we look to each other? Hey, you look pretty squared away there. How's life? Good. Hey, brother. I'm, I'm great. Everything good with you? Yeah, good. Great. I look polished up. Feeling good. But we're not dealing with our hearts. We're not dealing with the roots. Verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now notice that phrase, storing up. That's a phrase in other places of scripture, which usually means good things. We're storing up blessings, right? We're storing up treasures, but not here in verse 5. We're storing up something very different. In fact, uh, in his commentary in Romans, James Montgomery Boyce tells the story of a miser who for years was storing up and hoarding a collection of gold coins, and he was, he was collecting it, and it became the treasure of his heart. And he stored it in an attic right above his head. And then one day he was sleeping in his bed, and the weight of the gold coins fell through the ceiling, landed on him, and killed him. He thought he was storing up treasure, but the reality was he was only adding to his own judgment and to his own demise by hoarding that treasure. The same is true for the self-righteous moralist who presumes upon God's goodness. He judges others without examining himself. He goes on in his pride, thinking that it's his outward righteousness that is amassing a great treasure in heaven. Lord, look how good my life looks. Look at how I'm, I'm doing these things in the church, and I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm hitting all the checklists. I'm amassing treasure in heaven. God says, no, you're amassing judgment upon your own head for the day of judgment. Now let me remind you in case you've checked out. Unless you've fallen asleep here, you begin to say, well, this is, a, this is a great passage, good sermon, Jeff, but this isn't me. I want to remind you that Paul's writing this here. He's not addressing pagan idolaters anymore. He's talking to churchy people. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to Sunday churchgoers who might fall into the trap of moralism and follow a false gospel. May we have ears to hear that warning and eyes to see it today. The moralist must deal with sin at the heart level, not just on the outside. He's got to lay aside his stubbornness, intentionally seek to have the hardness of his heart broken up, to repent of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, and to turn away from judging others sinfully. Or else, there's only one expectation, judgment. That's what Paul's saying judgment. As we close today, I want to leave you with one final example 
practical example of what Paul's talking about today. This is a this is a real quote from a very famous American politician. We'll see if you can guess who it is. I'll put it up on the screen. Quote, This administration has proved that it is utterly incapable of cleaning out the corruption which has completely eroded it and reestablishing the confidence and faith of the people in the morality and honesty of their government employees. The investigations which have been conducted to, to date have only scratched the surface. For every case which is exposed, there are 10 which are successfully covered up. And even then, this administration will go down in history as the scandal-a-day administration. If they won't admit or recognize that corruption exists, how can we expect them to clean it up? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. Speaking of the Truman administration in the 1950s. Did those words come back to haunt him? The standard which he said in condemning another man came back to condemn him in the Watergate affair. Friends, hypocrisy and moralism is our enemy. Trusting in outward appearances and good behavior while judging others is a path to destruction. In the end, religion and moral living will save absolutely nobody. Let me say that again. In the end, religion and moral living will save absolutely zero people. In fact, I'll go so far as to say religion may be Satan's greatest weapon against human beings. There is only one gospel that will save us and transform us. And it's a gospel that sets us free from working to earn God's favor. It's a gospel that sets us free from hiding our imperfections, of just polishing up the outside. It's a gospel that sets us free from the guilt and the shame that force us into hiding. It's a gospel that sets us free from moralism and from therapeutic self-help. It's a gospel that urges us to be like Jesus, to extend grace and kindness and patience towards the people around us, to give them room and time to grow and not just to judge them in hypocrisy. Thankfully, we who know the true gospel and have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we're now freed to walk in the good works that God himself has prepared for us to walk in. We're freed to be trained now for godliness. The spirit within us is now changing our affections so that our obedience is not from us, but from him and for his glory and not for our own. Hypocrisy and moralism are the enemy. Next Sunday, we'll talk more about the the connection between good deeds and the judgment of God. Bow your heads, would you?